This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, it's a coffee special. We find out how coffee shops can create community, head to Singapore for a contemporary take on the reusable coffee cup, and in Toronto, we learn how one neighbourhood coffee shop approached a rebrand. All that and more coming up on Monocle on Design. Now, you might notice I'm out of the studio today. I'm actually at the Monocle Cafe on Chiltern Street in Marlebone, just around the corner from our office in London. Uh, and it's, to be honest, where I start most of my days. I've got a, I've got a slight caffeine addiction, and it, it's, it's the place I come to, I guess, scratch that itch, but also <laughs> to start my day every day. And I, I guess it's also an appropriate place to start today's show. So we're looking at coffee shops and how they can be a good example of a third place, a, a space where you come, that's not your home, that's not your office, uh, where you maybe only have to spend a little bit of money or hopefully none at all and, and, and just enjoy the company and, and presence of other people in, in a public space. It's this area that Lisa Waxman, a professor in the Department of Interior Architecture and Design at Florida State University, is a specialist in. She's also the author of Designing the Coffee Shop, Implications for People, Place and Community. She joined me down the line and began by sharing why she was so taken to exploring these spaces. I was really curious about this trend I was seeing where students were studying in coffee shops, young um, teenagers were hanging out after school in coffee shops, retired men were gathering in the morning in coffee shops. I thought, wow, this, this is really something. And I've always been interested in the social aspects of design and how design can contribute to sort of our idea of social capital and creation of community. Coffee shops are particularly well-placed to build community, to, to develop social capital. Is there something about them that makes them more able to do that than, say, a library or a gallery or, or other public spaces? Coffee shops are well-placed in part because you can come whenever you want, really. They're usually open many hours a day. You don't really have to meet someone there. You can be alone or you can come in a group or you might find somebody to sit with while you're there or you might over time develop friendships. And you can also linger. It's not like a restaurant where you're handed a bill at the end of your meal and then expected to give up the seat. So you can linger there. Usually the atmosphere is one that is welcoming I want to talk about third places. I mean, what for listeners is a third place and, and, and some of the characteristics that are inherent to them? The third place is uh, it's not work and it's not home. It's those other sorts of places that help get you through the day. Could be a coffee shop, but it could also be the gym where you go or the place you like to drink beer on Friday night or your barber shop. There are lots of spaces that have the potential to be third places. And these are places where people can kind of casually enjoy the company of others while nobody really has to play host and you you sort of know what to expect and you know who's there. And they're on that kind of neutral territory. Everybody is welcome to attend. A true third place doesn't have any form of membership. You don't have to be part of a club or pay a fee to join. It's really open to anybody from from all walks of life. Ray Oldenburg wrote a great book called The Great Good Place that defines characteristics of third places. He often says that they're low profile, meaning they wouldn't necessarily impress the uninitiated. I find, though, they can be low profile, but they sometimes are not and still 
can be pretty successful as a third place. That opportunity to linger that I mentioned, and then the opportunity of sort of feeling that sort of support from others, whether it's formal or informal. I've seen so many examples where people begin to look out for each other in the third place, like maybe an elderly person doesn't show up for a couple of days. So somebody goes and checks on them or somebody needs a ride to the airport and they end up, you know, taking advantage of someone that they met in the third place to to catch a ride. And so there are all kinds of ways that 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 third place can uh, can provide a, a both formal and formal friendships, socialization, support. Uh, and and just kind of helping to build that social fabric in a community. It almost sounds like more anthropology or sociology than it, it than does. it does. Uh, yes. You know, in, interior yeah. architecture and design. I mean, what what's yeah. that link there? Where does the design come into it? So talking about the various aspects of the ambient environment. So you're talking about the lighting, which is a really big factor in the success of a third place. You're looking at colors used, you're looking at textures, and very important aspect is you're looking at the space planning. So when you walk in, are you able to know where to go? Where do you queue up? Um, Which sounds like a simple thing, but sometimes it's not always clear. If you're going to stay, if you're going to sit, are you able to find a seat that's comfortable? And there's a whole body of work out there on the comfort in terms of closeness to other people. So Most people would like to have a little bit of personal space. Most people would like to be able to do a little bit of people watching. There's two terms that I really love that are part of theory of design called prospect and and refuge. So the idea is that you're feeling sheltered and protected with your back protected, but at the same time, having the ability to see out. And so... When you have spaces that are divided up in such a way that there are walls around the perimeter, but there may be half walls in between, or there may be a column, or there may even be a plant or the stand where you might have cream and sugar in your coffee shop, those can all provide sense of anchoring in a space. When people can kind of cozy up to those, they feel a little bit more grounded and a little bit more settled. We want a little bit of protection while we can also see what's going on around us. It's hard to make every space in the coffee shop have those qualities, but if you can have some of them or many of them, those are almost always the first seats chosen. And then access to natural light, access to views without glare, because I've seen so many coffee shops that have real unpleasant brightness contrast where they have really dark areas combined with really light areas. So kind of getting that balanced out where you have access to views, you have access to natural light, but you also have that protection from unwanted glare. And then comfort. This gets kind of interesting because if you make it too comfortable, sometimes you have people who stay too long. And you might hear the term used occasionally, campers. And those are people who come in and they may study for six hours. Or I've even seen people come in who may work from home and wheel in their whole home office with files and then conduct interviews for job positions and things. So sometimes you have people who do kind of overstep (laughs) the friendly atmosphere of the coffee shop. But for the most part, you do want to create that sense of comfort. If you need faster turnover, if you have a small space and you don't want people to linger more than 15 or 20 minutes, then having seating that's a little less comfortable can kind of help with that turnover somewhat. You talked about the importance of lighting at the very top of this, and and I want to get your definition of what good lighting in in a third place like a coffee shop is. There are different types of lighting. Of course, it depends on the time of day. So if you've got some natural light coming in, that 
really adds a nice quality to the space. But you want to be able to have enough ambient lighting, kind of that overall illumination that people can safely see and it can also balance out any areas of darkness in the space. And then you want to have specific task lighting. So if, if people are there to read, if they're there to have a meeting, you want to make sure that wherever they're sitting, that there's enough light for them to be comfortable, to see the faces of others, or to be able to read. And if you have an older demographic, older folks typically need more light to be able to see well. And then you can also have accent lighting that adds to that decor and contributes to the overall ambient lighting, but is more of a decorative feature than the lighting required to be actually to see. And then, of course, where the people are working, where the baristas and their workers are situated, you want to make sure that there's enough lighting there so they can do their job. So there isn't a level of frustration for them. I mean, what about the regulars? What what role are they playing in this? Yeah, the regulars actually are a huge part of what makes the coffee shop what it is. Those people who come in on a regular basis and they often feel very attached to the coffee shop. They often feel a sense of ownership where they aren't really owners, but they do feel like it is their space. That most of the time is a really positive thing. Uh, they also may feel a sense of territoriality where they may have special seats where they want to to hang out or it may be that there's always this round table for five where the same group of uh, retired men sit every morning. Their attitudes, maybe their their friendliness or lack thereof uh, to the other patrons, all that really plays a role. It's important to them. It's also important to the whole social vibe of the space to to have those regulars there. Just finally, what is the place that the, the cafe holds present but also going forward? Where do you see cafes as third places going or evolving to? Are they becoming more important or is it something that, uh, you know, maybe people need less? I'm here in the States, so I'm just seeing it from that perspective. But what I'm seeing is that during the pandemic, we all became suddenly aware of the little daily encounters that we were no longer having with people that turns out were really important. We're humans, we're wired for connection with each other. Even if we're quiet, somewhat introverted people, we still often enjoy that little bit of touch with others in our community, whether it's just a smile or a quick hello. And so what we've learned coming out of it is, wow, people really miss that. They miss that opportunity just to sit among others or or to meet people in a space. So the places I frequent are busier than ever. More and more groups of people of all ages utilizing coffee shops for quick meetings, for formal meetings. My husband has a group he meets for coffee. He's retired and they call themselves the Romeos, retired old men eating out. It's a real important part of his week is to be able to get together with these folks. That's actually a common occurrence. It's continuing to be strong from, from what I'm seeing. My thanks to Lisa Waxman there. You're listening to Monocle On Design, and I'm Nick Manise, recording today from the Monocle Cafe. Uh, We're in London, but we're heading over to Singapore now, where a local design firm has developed the Coffee Cup. This contemporary take on the reusable coffee container takes its cue from improvised solutions that casual vendors fashioned from cans back in the 1950s. Let's hear from one of the designers, Gustavo Maggio, now. He's co-founder and creative director of Studio Forest and Whale.
When the pandemic started at our home and our studio, we started ordering much more food. We started taking away coffee and, and also lunch and dinner in a way that we didn't before. And it became clearer that the amount of waste being generated from all these containers was something that, that needed some um, design solutions or at least some, some care and love from our side. As we did a bit of research into the local culture of Southeast Asia, we realized that there was room to do something different, something new, even though there are, I don't know, probably hundreds of reusable coffee cups out there. Many of them are kind of similarly designed from a Western perspective. And as we did our research into the local food courts, we realized that there were a lot of very interesting elements to play with to make this product not just functional in the sense that it was easy to carry, um, it has a double wall to keep the coffee warm for longer, it's spill-proof, all these functional things have to be solved very well, but there was an additional element of emotional connection with our culture in Southeast Asia, and that became mainly the reason why we decided to design one more reusable cup. In Singapore and in other places in Southeast Asia before, there was any uh, disposable alternative, before plastic became ubiquitous, before there were paper cups where you could take away coffee. The local baristas would reuse the metal tins where the milk came in. In Asia, we use a lot of both condensed milk and evaporated milk for the coffee. This come in the same metal tin uh, as packaging, the same as today. But back then, what the, these baristas would do is after they finish using the, all the milk, they would wash the container, they would poke a hole in the lid and attach a string. So that became the only way you could take away coffee. and. That became very iconic because of the way it looks. In a way, it's very functional, or it was very functional. You have that string that allows you to hang it, whether it's a bicycle handle or just hang it with a finger. So visually, it became very iconic. And it was the only option to take away coffee, and it was an innovation from that era. So what we did is, with our new design, celebrate that innovation from the 50s, but make a design that is updated with uh, better materials, better insulation, better quality, so that part of that history is translated or kept for the future generations. For coffee cup, the body is a double wall stainless steel so that it keeps the coffee warm for much longer. And then uh, the lid is recycled PP, and we have a string, kind of a, a, a braided string on the top that is easily removed and changed for color customization or change after a while if it breaks down or whatever happens. That allows you to carry very easily with a finger or hang it in, again, in a bicycle handle or anyone else. So it's a combination of long lasting materials and uh, the best quality for insulation. Uh, we did a few rounds of prototypes and when we were testing we would bring this cap to, to the very old baristas that 
used to do this improvisation in the 60s and when they see the new cap they immediately realize that is connected to that practice they used to do in the past or maybe the parents used to do. So it was very nice to kind of ignite a conversation about reusing, about uh, sustainability, because many of them are very aware that when they use plastic cups, uh, their coffee tastes different. The most interesting part was the conversations that came along as we tested the prototypes with all these vendors. And many of them were really excited to, to see a product that reflected their past and could also bring this uh, notion of sustainability into the future generations. Maybe partly because we are based both in Asia or because of our background and European. My wife is uh, Singaporean that also runs the studio. We see that many global trends, in this case circularity, they need what we call like local cultural pivots, which is small adjustments to make a concept, make a movement, a trend relevant to whether it's Asia, Southeast Asia as a culture. I think that's where the copy cap as a new design becomes very important because it may be that emotional connection through the design elements that connect with the past may be the difference, maybe the, the small a little detail that convince one more person to stop using disposables and, and switch into reusables. So that's super important. The designer Gustavo Maggio of Singaporean design firm Forest & Whale. We head to Toronto now to explore how valuable a well-designed brand is for the city's array of beloved independent coffee shops. Monocle's Toronto correspondent, Thomas Lewis, met Julie Galeazzos, who owns Ideal Coffee. It's a small chain of three coffee shops founded in the city's Kensington Market neighbourhood in 1999. Twenty years later, she commissioned Ditti Katona, co-founder of local design studio Concrete, to refresh its branding. We'll hear from Ditti in a moment on how she approached the commission, but first, here's Julie on Ideal Coffee's place among the wealth of independent coffee shops in Canada's largest city. Toronto does have a really rich history of coffee, and I think for a long time there were a lot more micro-roasteries, but in the sort of European sort of settlements in Toronto. So I grew up in Greektown. And I remember going to Little Italy where there was a small roaster on College Street. The little coffee houses, although they didn't have roasters in the back of the coffee shops, they still had this sort of history of that. And I think the evolution was that these micro roasters, although there was a period of time where you didn't see them around as much, they started popping up. Ideal was the first one I encountered. After that, the specialty coffee scene in Toronto just began to to blow up. I love what I'm seeing around. There are so many people endeavoring to roast their own coffee and therefore learn more about it from tree to cup. And that for me is the most important part that we can have that connection. So there's a real appreciation for coffee now. And my experience of it with Ideal is that we have a strong community presence. All three of our locations are in very prominent sort of residential areas. So I feel like there's a, a sense where you can have an elevated coffee experience without it being in this sort of pretentious 
downtown establishment. I feel there's a warmth and connection there. Everyone thinks design has to be cold, or if you use the sensor, if it's cold or whatever. The one great thing about Ideal, and it, it is a place that when we were working full-time in the office, we went in every morning, got to know the people. I think there's a lot of competition between coffee shops from being, you know, white and black, which I also love. It's just a different aesthetic. I go there too. Like, it's not like you need either or. But there is something about the neighborhood coffee shop. Every neighborhood corner grocery is gone You know, you have to get in a car and go everywhere. Or if you don't get in a car, it's one main street. It used to be every other corner in a neighborhood had a corner grocery. And there was something about that being the center of the community. And really, to me, ideal, more so definitely the Sororan location, probably even Kensington. To start in Kensington is super cool. But the idea for me, it is kind of nostalgic, the corner grocery idea. It was the corner coffee shop. It just made sense. I don't know how else to explain it. And... It wasn't fancy, but I knew I got something good. The fact that I knew that there was a person behind it gave me trust also. I didn't know Julie at the time. We'd go in all the time, but I figured she has really nice people working here. Coffee tastes good. They care. That idea of caring, I think, means even more now. I've always believed that if I can find in any brand, even if I don't know the person, a sense of authenticity or care, I will be loyal. And the hardest thing these days is to find that loyalty in any brand. Capture the heart, capture the heart. Not easy, (laughs) you know, and there's so much competition. But with Ideal, it, it had just so many things going for it. I think it just needed some clarity. It did not need to lose the hominess, the warmth. That store makes sense. It just needed a bit of clarity on the name, that it is the I and the deal is actually separated, (laughs) Uh, which is really funny. We wanted to make it simpler, to be honest. She just needed some presence that wasn't just cute because I think the quality was there, but I'm not sure it reflected the seriousness as much as it's a serious business. Oh, I see. Yeah. The name is Ideal Coffee, yeah. and then the I is separate, so it's Ideal. So it's like yeah. I think in this design, my hopes was that we would kind of emphasize that right. and have people chuckle a little bit. Like, we're your neighborhood dealers. That's coffee. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so there's a story here. So the original story I was told is in Kensington Market. The original location was a drug den prior to being Ideal Coffee. And so the original owner would say, I don't deal drugs, I deal coffee. And so now times have changed a little, but it's kind of nice to honor the history and to emphasize the fact that there is a separation. We just wanted it to stand out within all the stuff going on because the store is, the retail aspect of it is everything. You got the brick wall, you know, it's not a interior designer special. It is definitely your corner grocery in a sense, uh, your corner coffee shop. But at the same time, it had to contrast the chaos in some ways. And this contrasts it very heavily and it had to be bold. I wanted people to read this from far away, whether it's on a tote bag or not. And it had to signal a change as well. Coffee shops start to proliferate, right? There's so many. And a lot of them really do put a lot of money into over-designing, I feel. That's just my personal thing. But some coffee shops should be that. If that's what the owner wants, no problem. And I just wanted to make sure that Ideal wasn't seen as a cute brand and was seen as a serious brand. Not like, oh, this is, you know, this this is your cute little coffee shop. You know, five people go. It had to have weight. It had to have a bit of a boldness that I felt Julie and her quietness has. 
and in her building of the business. I just wanted new people to see it. And have you noticed, you know, maybe it's hard to totally draw a line between these things, but in terms of the impact, the brand refresh, the design of the name, the feeling it evokes, what difference do you feel that that sort of made? For those who knew us, I think they thought it was pretty cool. Like, wow, this is a nice design, but you know, what you had before was also great. But I, but I feel like for a lot of people, they took us more seriously. And I think maybe it was ideal growing up a little. And I felt that as Ideal became more and more about community, it gave me an opportunity to highlight something that we do and to work with someone like Didi and the team at Concrete. It wasn't an easy thing, I have to say. And Didi knows this. I, I, I had a difficult time recognizing what I wanted it to be. And then when this presented itself, I was like, yes, that's something that I feel reflects that sort of emotional connection I have to what we do, which is a really big thing, big thing for us. Julie Galeazzos, owner of Toronto's Ideal Coffee, and Ditti Katona, co-founder of Concrete Design Studio. They were speaking to Monocle's Toronto correspondent, Thomas Lewis. And to close today's show, we take a dip in our own archives to look at a design classic from Italian brand Bialetti. With more, here's Monocle's Ivan Cavallo. Every morning, millions of Italians begin their day with a simple ritual, making espresso at home using a small aluminium pot known as the Mocha Express. For 85 years, its no-frills design has won over converts from the Bel Paese and beyond. To date, over 200 million units have been sold by its creator, Italian manufacturer Bialetti. On a visit to the company's headquarters near Brescia, Francesco Ferretti, Bialetti brand director, talked about the lasting appeal of one of Italy's most recognized products of industrial design. The reason why Mocha is an evergreen product is that uh, it's a simple design and very easy to use. The design was inspired by the pleated skirts which were popular uh, during uh, the 30s and uh, that was the inspiration that uh, Alfonso Bialetti used to uh, deliver the very iconic uh, octagonal shape that is, uh, uh, became very soon uh, an icon of the Italian design and it's the base uh, of the mocha pot. It's a very easy-to-use product. Uh, that's why still today people use uh, the Mocha Bialetti, first of all because it delivers a very high-quality coffee, but uh, you can uh, take it wherever you want. You can use it in your kitchen at home. Uh, but uh, uh, just now I was uh, reading an article about uh, a very famous climber uh, who just took the Mocha on the, his expedition, climbing expedition on the Nanga Parbat on the Himalaya at 5,000 uh, uh, meters uh, on the sea level. And uh, that's because uh, you just need the flame and you can uh, prepare your uh, fantastic Italian coffee uh, wherever you want. You just need some uh, water, uh, the Bialetti Mocha and the ground coffee. Inspired by futurism and Art Deco, Alfonso Bialetti's design included an angled handle shaped like a coat hanger and an octagonal base in die-cast aluminium. Though developed in the 1930s, his Mocha Express coffee pot saw a surge in sales starting in the 1950s, 
when son Renato began to advertise the product on billboards and television. Building on the mocha's popularity and to counter newer household coffee trends that use capsules and pods, Bialetti has developed newer versions to attract customers. One of the new design and uh, patent is uh, what we call the Bricca, which is uh, a mocha pot uh, which is uh, able to deliver uh, exactly the same cream as uh, an espresso machine, but delivering the aroma of the typical uh, mocha express. This is because of a valve, a, a patented Bialetti valve, a pressostatic valve which is creating the pressure to create the effect of the coffee cream. Here we have uh, another uh, innovation uh, which is following uh, the, um, the changing uh, habits of the Italian and uh, European families which are gradually moving to new kitchen uh, like the, with the induction hops. And so in this case we develop uh, a mocha which is uh, suitable to be used on the induction hops. And uh, what is particular on this mocha is that uh, the upper chamber is uh, aluminum based uh, like the classical uh, mocha, while the boiler is uh, stainless steel because it needs to be activated through the uh, induction machine. To help users get the most out of the classic Mocha Express, Bielati has gone a step further today by launching its own line of espresso coffee. We made a research with chances to learn about uh, the tradition uh, in every Italian city to understand how consumers like uh, better their coffee. And uh, we launch a range of coffee blends named Roma, Napoli, Milano, Torino, Venezia. And uh, each of its blends represents one of the Italian cities and the way uh, the Italian consumer really like coffee. With an estimated 9 out of 10 Italian homes owning a mocha, this petite espresso maker has earned its place in the pantheon of Italian design. For Monocle, in Brescia, I'm Ivan Carvalho. Cara, voglio subito una mocha express, ma mi raccomando, con termocremo. Una esclusività brevettata. Prodotto Bialetti. My thanks to Ivan Carvalho there and the team at the Monocle Cafe in London where we are recording today's show. Uh, but that's a wrap on it. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. Also, if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. And, it would be remiss of me to say, if you are in a city where a Monocle Cafe is, do stop in for a, for a cup of coffee or an espresso or a, or a tea or a matcha and say hello to our friendly staff. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.